Good morning. I just want to extend a happy Veterans Day to any of you guys in this place or watching online who have served. Um, I know that there is no such thing as an easy tour in the military. It takes physical or mental toll, if nothing else, then it is a sacrifice of time. And so thank you. We see you and we appreciate you. Now, some of you guys don't know this about me, uh, but I was actually in the Navy from 2009 to 2013. I was stationed on an FFG in Jacksonville, Florida called the USS Taylor. It has since been decommissioned, but if you've never been out on the ocean on a ship like that, it is a different kind of experience. And one of my duties on the ship was something called a forward lookout. And what that means is that in low visibility situations, either high density fog or even storms, my job, and I don't know how I ended up with this job, I must have made someone mad at some point, but my job would be to go out to the very front of the ship, think like Jack and Rose Titanic, like the front tip of the ship, and, and armed with the binoculars and, and a headset, I'd work as a team with three other lookouts on each side and the back of the ship, and we'd report to the bridge where they steered the ship, and we'd just tell them about any potential hazards in the water. Now, what you have to understand is that during storms, which is almost always when we got called to lookout duty, the waves actually crash on the front of the ship. And the wind and the rain is at its strongest on the front of the ship. And I used to get slammed up there. And if you look up forward lookout on the Navy website, if you Google that, you'll probably see something like this. And this looks really nice, right? This looks heroic, and it's sunny, and it's beautiful. The times when we never got called to lookout duty. That's what you'll see on the website. But for me, when I did it, it, it looked more like this. <laughs> Let me just say that the ocean is no joke. We had some moments where it actually felt like we might get swept away out there. Now, I say all of that because we only have a couple weeks left as we read through the book of Acts. We've been reading the book of Acts this entire year, and we have just a, a couple weeks left, and what we were currently reading about is uh, a, someone named Paul who was traveling around the known world and spreading the message of the gospel. And these past couple weeks, Paul has been locked in prison, but he's finally going to be transported, and he's about to be going to Rome to stand before Caesar Nero and to be transported from where he's at to go to Rome, he's going to be put on a ship out on the ocean, and Paul is about to be hit with a massive ocean storm. Now, you, what you have to understand is that this storm is not like a baby storm. This is a real deal. Like, this could be the end. Life is in danger type of storm. And I think that's something that would resonate with each of us, even if we've never been in the Navy, because as human beings, we go through storms. It's not a possibility. It's not a maybe. It's, it's a definite. The Bible speaks about it in multiple places. But I don't even think you need the Bible to tell you that you're going to go through storms. Like, you've experienced it. Some of you are likely in stormy seasons right now. And here's the thing. I think it's our tendency as human beings to try to either outrun the storms or try to escape storms altogether. But we can't do that. So what do we do? Well, I truly believe that God has a purpose for everything, even storms. I believe that God doesn't waste anything. He uses everything, even storms, for a purpose. And so we are going to be reading 
Acts chapter 27. If you have your Bibles, you can read along. If not, there might be an Acts journal in front of you in the seat back, and you can have that. Uh, That's our gift to you. If not, then we'll have the words up on the screen, but we're going to be reading all of Acts chapter 27 today. But before we do, let's pray together. God, you're good. And I thank you for these moments that we have to share together. I just ask that you bless this time. God, I I pray that through the scripture and through me, that this is not just the talk, but that your Holy Spirit actually descends on this place in such a powerful way that we hear who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what all this means for us, that even in seasons of life, we have a God we can trust and who carries us home. Jesus, you are good and we love you. We pray all this in your name and your name alone. Amen. So Acts 27, starting at verse 1, says this. It says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, so they're moving Paul from his prison in Caesarea, and they're taking him to Rome. When it was decided we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which is about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, and the next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And so Paul is passed into the custody of this Roman centurion named Julius who's going to escort him to Rome. Now if you've never noticed this before, God uses Roman centurions in a very interesting, specific way in the New Testament. Ways you wouldn't expect. If you didn't know, a Roman centurion was actually a Roman general who would be in charge of a legion of 100 Roman soldiers. That's where the name came from, centurion. And so you can imagine, these men were rough, they were brutal, they were strong, often cruel, very influential people. But the thing is interesting, every time we see them in the Bible, God is using them for his purpose. In Matthew chapter 8, this Roman centurion desperately approaches Jesus and says, listen, my servant is sick, he's really sick, and if you don't heal him, he's going to die. And so Jesus says, all right, lead the way, I'll follow you, let's go to your house, I'll heal him. And this Roman centurion says, no, I know who you are, and I don't want you to even get your feet dirty walking to my house, but I know that you have power that even if you speak it from a distance, he'll be healed. And Jesus is like, wow, pretty amazing faith for a Roman centurion. Later in the Bible, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, when he takes his final breath, it's a Roman centurion, a Roman centurion who was overseeing his crucifixion, who says, surely he was the son of God. Earlier in the book of Acts, This Roman centurion named Cornelius, he sends for the apostle Peter and he says, will you come and talk to my family? Peter goes, preaches the gospel, and this Roman centurion, Cornelius, and his entire family, they're some of the first non-Jewish people to say yes to following Jesus. And now we see this centurion named Julius escorting Paul. And the passage says, not only does Julius show Paul kindness, But he also allows this guy, Aristarchus, who's a fellow Jesus follower, and he allows the Apostle Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, that's why we even have it in front of us to read, he allows both of them to just go as guests on this prison transport. Like, that didn't happen. God's obviously at work. And then on top of that, Julius does the unheard of, and he just lets Paul, a prisoner, 
take a little mini leave when they pull into port. Go see your fellow Jesus followers. Let them take care of you. Like this never happens. This is amazing the way God uses the least likely of people to help point the world towards Jesus. And so the centurion lets Paul go and then Paul obviously comes back and puts the chains on because Rome is the destination. The text goes on in verse 4. It says, And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Samon. They're covering serious ground. It says, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, which is just Luke's way of telling us it's October now. The fast, the feast, it, that's past. We're in October, which you didn't sail in October. It was dangerous. It says, now that the voyage was dangerous, Paul advised them. And so Paul's going to give them some advice. But before he does, I just want to stop here, and I want to acknowledge the obvious first parallel between Paul's journey and our journey just in life. Notice, nothing comes easy, does it? You, you can read through this passage. It says the winds were against us. It was difficult. We had to sail slowly. It, we were arrived with difficulty. It was dangerous. Like, nothing comes easy. And that's how life is, right? There's always some powerful headwind. There's always some raging seas. There's always some problem. There's always some storm. And it reinforces something that you already know, and that's that storms disrupt our comfort levels. Storms disrupt our comfort levels. Do you know one of the main ways we get confused about God's will? We think that when we meet resistance, that it means something's going wrong. We think that when things get difficult, that's our sign to change direction. This must not be right. We think when things are chaotic and hard, that means that we're no longer in God's will. And the reason we think that is because we like things quiet. We like things comfortable. Listen, I don't know how many of you guys have kids at home or have been around kids, but we have two, under two, right now, and when things are quiet, we know something's going wrong. When things are quiet, that's when we know something fishy is going on, and I think it's often the same in our spiritual walk. If it's quiet, that means we're not growing. That means we're stagnant. And take it from me as someone who walked through this for years, being spiritually stagnant is not a place you want to be. It's empty, it's discouraging, it's spiritually and emotionally draining. I know that some of you are there right now and know exactly what I'm talking about. And the thing is, that usually starts when things are quiet, when nothing's going on. We lull ourselves to sleep. We lull ourselves to a place of comfort. The thing is, as believers, we shouldn't really want things to be quiet. Because the truth is, quiet would mean that you've arrived. Quiet would mean that the journey is over. And as believers, your journey is never over as long as your heart is beating. 
you've never arrived. You've never got it all figured out. I don't care how old you are, how long you've been following Jesus. There's always something new that God has for you. There's always some new call to action. If nothing else, there's a new way to look at and be amazed by the gospel. And the thing is, is Jesus followers, we always say, I want to go deeper. I want to know Jesus more deeply. I want to go deeper in my faith. But what we fail to realize is that it usually requires some kind of storm to take us there. Anyone ever prayed for patience? And all of a sudden, your kids or your animals start going like buck wild? It's like, God, what's going on? Well, maybe God's giving you a chance to develop patience. Anyone ever pray to be better at trusting God and then suddenly you lose your job or some other tragedy happens and, God, what's going on? Well, you now have an opportunity to trust God. Paul endures storm after storm because he needs storm after storm to become this person that God desires him to be. And I don't know who in this room needs to hear this, but humans are creatures that love being comfortable. The thing is, comfort is terrible for your faith. If you're just camping out in your comfort zone, I promise you, you will not grow there. The beginning of your comfort zone is the end of your faith growing. Because the truth is, being out of your comfort zone is when you're forced to depend on God, and that's when you grow. And if you're not depending on God, who are you depending on? And there's no growth there. So sometimes you need to be shaken out of that. Sometimes you need to be taken out of your comfort zone. In the Old Testament, this prophet named uh, Jeremiah, he says this, he says, Moab has been at ease from his youth. Things have been easy. And has settled on his dregs. He's not been emptied from vessel to vessel nor has he gone into exile, so his taste remains in him and his scent is not changed. We have any wine drinkers in here? Liars, man. Liars. This passage is comparing the nation of Moab to a container of wine. And if, if you didn't know, since none of you like wine apparently, if you didn't know, the process of making wine involves putting ingredients together and then letting them sit and ferment. But the thing is, when it sits too long, all of this sludge like settles on the bottom of the jar, and it's called settling on the dregs, and it, it makes the wine sour and bitter and useless. And so to avoid this, they stir the jar up to mix things up. You see where I'm going with this? They, they dump the wine from one jar to another to keep it from settling, it was this intentional process of refining the wine until it was exactly what it needed to be. Some of you guys are settled on the dregs. Some of you are locked so tightly in your comfort zone and you push so hard against any kind of discomfort that you haven't grown in your faith in years. Your faith is sour, it's bitter. Sometimes you need to be stirred up. Well, storms are great for that. So if you are in a storm, maybe you should consider what God may be trying to refine in you. Storms disrupt our comfort levels, so the winds come, and Paul, having seen some storms in his day during all of his travels, he gives the crew some advice. He says this, he says, Sirs, 
I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury, with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that they somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest to spend the winter there. So they don't want to spend the winter where they're at, so they said we're going to brave the rough seas to try to get somewhere else. It says, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, meaning when they saw their opportunity, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, and you're New Englanders, you know about Nor'easters, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. And so they can't even control the ship anymore. It's just taking them wherever it's going to take them. It says, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. So they tried to secure the ship, couldn't, their back being torn along by the wind. It says, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So, not great. Things are looking bleak. The storm is raging. And this says they're just about to give up hope of even surviving this. And then in verses 18 and 19, it says they jettison the cargo. And if you didn't know, jettison the cargo means they started throwing things overboard to make the ship lighter and easier to control. In this case, they would have been throwing grain and gold and other valuables overboard. The storm is here, and immediately they start chucking things overboard that don't matter anymore because they're trying to save themselves. Things that just moments ago would have been of the utmost importance and value when the storm comes, they just throw it. Don't need that anymore. Which shows us that storms rearrange our priorities. Guess what you're not worried about when you just got diagnosed with cancer or someone you greatly care about just passed away or depression or anxiety is driving you into the ground or some other tragedy befalls your life, guess what you're not worried about? Money and being comfortable and politics and what other people think about you. You know the things we obsess about every single day? Those things don't matter anymore. Guess what immediately becomes more appealing to you when the storm comes? Spending time with your family? Maybe praying? For the first time, worship, reading scripture, picking up the Bible for the first time in a long time, putting your faith in God, seeking a deeper dependence and understanding of him. And here's the truth about humans. Storms and struggles will bring out the real you. Nothing shows your true colors like some adversity. And the most difficult moments of your life when you're struggling the most, when things are dangerous, when things are terrible, that is when you are the most authentic version of yourself. 
Now, do you think it's a coincidence that it's in those moments when we're the most authentic version of ourselves that we're drawn closer to God than any other moments of our life? I mean, ask any Jesus follower, like, when were you closest to God? Like, out of your whole life, when were you closest to God? You know when it never was? Well, I was going rock climbing with my friends, and or it was like my 26th birthday, and like my friend surprised me, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so close to God. Like, it's never that. It's never good moments. Without fail, the moments we're closest to God, it's always after I lost my dad, or when my sister got diagnosed with a terminal illness, or when I got laid off and we almost lost everything. Do you know why those are the moments when we're closest to God? Because that's the most authentic version of you. When this facade that we have of control and we have time, we think, when those things begin to come into question and the storm is here, what's really important rises to the surface. The most authentic version of you cries out, God, I can't do this. God, I can't do this. God, I'm falling apart here. God, I need you more now than ever. And if God, if you don't show up, I'm not going to make it. That's the real you. And so if that's the real you, why not let that broken and discouraged, but also seeing very clearly real version of you, why not let that you testify to the current you who's been blinded by the fact that you think you're in control and you think you have time. Why not let the you who sees clearly testify to this you? I think a lot of times we get angry when the storm comes, but honestly what we should be doing is thanking God for an opportunity to get clarity about what was important. God, I forgot what was important. I see now. A storm will rearrange your priorities, and so this crew starts throwing everything overboard, and they've all but given up hope, and Paul talks to them again says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. That's what everyone wants to hear when they've made a mistake, right? Should have listened to me. Could have avoided this if you just listened to me. Passage goes on. It says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. For this very night stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. I love that, the God to whom I belong. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. You're going to Rome, Paul. You are getting there. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So not even just you, Paul, everyone on that ship, you're going to be all right. So Paul says, so take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, so two weeks of this, imagine, two weeks of being storm-tossed, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, which just means they measured how far away they were from land. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, so they're getting closer. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four ankles from the ankles, four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, 
they'd lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So interesting, isn't it? Paul goes from just this loud-mouthed prisoner to now he's calling shots on the ship. He has the ear of this Julius Roman centurion. He has the ear of the captain of the ship. He has the ear of the soldiers. And just picture this. Like the crew begins lowering the equivalent of an escape boat, like those little ships off the side. They're beginning to lower that, and they're about to jump in it and try to escape. And as they're about to lower this boat, Paul tells the centurion and his men, if you jump ship, you're going to die. Well, wait a second. Just a few seconds ago, Paul was talking about this grand vision he had from an angel and like, and everyone's going to be saved. And now he's saying there's a chance that they all die. Like, which is it, Paul? Are they going to be saved or are they going to die? And Paul says, well, that's up to you. It depends on which boat you're in. And this is so powerful to me, man. And I don't want you to miss this. Storms feel different depending on which boat you're in. Storms feel different depending on which boat you're in. Now, for clarity's sake, we're not really talking about boats anymore, are we? Paul says, this boat here, this boat is in alignment with God's plan. This is the boat that God has sent us to escape the wrath of the storm. And if you stay in this boat, you're going to be saved. But that boat over there... This storm is going to swallow that boat up, and anyone in that boat is not going to make it. Can I read you the words of Jesus? Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Houses, boats, doesn't really matter. The the message is the same. Every life, all paths, they're all going to encounter storms. Like we've said, that's inevitable. The Bible says the rains fall on the unjust and the just. Storms are coming. The same way you can't earn God's grace, you also can't unearn storms. But the storm feels different depending on which boat you're in. So which boat are you in? Which God are you following? Is your boat sex? Physical satisfaction? Lust? Porn? hookups, anything outside of what God has designed human intimacy to be, is that the boat you think is going to satisfy you? Is that the boat you think is going to save you? Is your boat your reputation? Obsessed with being perceived a certain way by other people, either in person or online, desperate to be just recognized or acknowledged or accepted? You think that boat's going to satisfy you? You think it's going to save you? Maybe your boat's money or possessions. Maybe you grew up and you 
always had money or you've never had money and you think, if I could just make another 20000 another 10000 a year, like if we could just get into a house, like if we could just find some financial security, like if we just had a little bit more, you think that would satisfy you? You think that would save you? Would that be enough? It doesn't even have to be bad things. I mean, maybe your boat is your family. I'm not saying not to love your family. I love my family. I'd do anything for my family. But there are people who put everything on their family. They think their family is going to save them. I've seen people have kids and then post online, this child saved me. How much pressure that is to put on a kid to save you. Your family, your family can love you, but your family's human. They're going to let you down. They're going to be human, and they can be taken away from you. Maybe you're super-duper religious. Maybe that's your boat. Maybe you've been taught that you need Jesus, and then you also need to be a really good person to be saved. Maybe you think it's your morality and goodness and obedience and righteousness that's going to save you. Thanks for the boat, Jesus, but I think I'm just going to paddle on my own. Listen, man, all I can say if you're in one of these other boats is good luck. Because there's only one. Only one boat makes it through the storms of this life and still has peace and joy and love and fulfillment at the end of the day. Only one. Only one boat faces illness and financial hardship and addiction and even death and comes out on the other side unscathed. And you have a ticket to this boat. But that ticket was not free. That ticket was paid for with blood was paid for with the blood of the one who knows every dark corner of your life and loves you the same. It was paid for with the blood of the one who walked willingly into the storm with your sin and shame, strapped onto his back and let the wind and waves swallow him up only to emerge on the other side with your ticket in his hand. And his name is Jesus, and he is the only one. He is the only safe boat to be in. And some of you guys, man, some of you guys are sitting in these rickety, busted boats that are barely worth the worn-out twine that's holding them together. And storms are on the way. And Paul's absolutely right. If you're not in the right boat, you're just, you're not going to make it. So these soldiers, they stay in the boat and the text wraps up. It says, and as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense. I can barely go 14 hours. The 14th day you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. I love the practicality of Paul. Everything's going to be fine. Let's just have some breakfast. Let's pray. By the way, the, the ship is still like being tossed around. It says, Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them 
in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. If you have no idea what any of that means, it's all sailing jargon. They're just making a move for the island. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So the waves are crashing on the ship and starting to break it apart. It says the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. That's including Paul. These Roman soldiers are going to kill the prisoners because if you didn't know, if you were a soldier and in charge of a prisoner, if that prisoner escaped, whatever they were going to do to the prisoner, they're now going to do to you. And so these soldiers are like, we're not letting them escape. We're going to kill them. But in verse 43, it says, but the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and then the rest on planks and on, or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. They all make it. They all survive. Paul told them they would. He said, God showed me the way, and if you follow the way, you're all going to be saved. And they follow him, and they're saved. And that brings us to our final point, and that's that you can trust God in the storm. You can trust God in the storm, guys. Listen, do I believe that God causes every storm? No, I don't. I believe sometimes he does, and then other times I believe it's the enemy stirring up storms. A lot of times, if I'm being honest, I think we bring the storm on ourselves, and then other times I think it's caused by just the circumstances of a broken world. The truth is it, it doesn't matter. I'm trying to be better at letting go of obsessing over who caused what storm. Instead, I'm trying to focus on the truth that even in the midst of the storm, you can trust God. You can trust God. You know how I know? Because I know the plan that God has for you. I know God's plan for your life. The prophet Isaiah lays it out. And it's God's plan for each of us. Isaiah says, in Isaiah chapter 61, he says, And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up, to embrace, to hug the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. I love Isaiah, man. Isaiah says an oak of righteousness that glorifies God. Like that's me. That's you. Oak trees are these massive, powerful, immovable trees, but they didn't start that way. Each oak tree just started as a little seed that had to fight, to sprout, to even break ground. And every powerful oak tree at points in its life had to endure rain and wind and blistering heat and freezing cold and storms. But with each storm, they get stronger and the roots run deeper. 
And through so many storms, they become these giants. And just like Paul, God is trying to make you a faith giant. He's trying to grow you. God wants to use you to make his name famous. Do you have any idea how amazing that is? He's making you a part of a story. And through every storm, God is shaking you out of your comfort zone. He's getting you comfortable with the uncomfortable, and he's strengthening your faith. God is refining you like a fine wine and not letting you settle on the dregs. And through every storm, God is rearranging your priorities and allowing you to see what's really important, and he's proving that he truly is an ever-present help in your time of need. He shows up time and time again, and through every storm, God is inviting you into his boat, holding the ticket that he paid for with his blood, promising to bring you home. This is good news. And I might not have seen much when I was the forward lookout on the USS Taylor, but after over 20 years of experiencing storms on the firm foundation that is Jesus Christ, and I've seen enough to know that he is exactly who he says he is, and he never fails. Let's pray. God, you are good. Jesus, I just pray, I pray for forgiveness when the moments when I didn't see the moments when I got distracted, when I thought I had time, when I thought I was in control, when I thought I knew what was up. I pray forgiveness for that because in the storms, you have shown me time and time again that you are good and you're in control and you're carrying me and you're bringing me home. You are a God worthy of our trust. God, I pray for anyone in this room right now who's experiencing a storm. God, I pray that you give them clarity. If you're refining them, show them. If you're rearranging their priorities, show them. God, if you're just drawing them closer to yourself, let them feel that. Lord, and I pray for any person in this room who has not made the decision to climb in your boat because to me that is a terrifying place to be. I don't want anyone to be at the mercy of the world around us and the storm around us when the boat that you have, that you provided, that you died for, secure and safe and firm and consistent. Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us, dying on a cross, facing the wrath of the storm, and emerging with our ticket in your hand. You are so good, Lord, and we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.